quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. If you bought your first place and you had a terrible tenant and they destroyed the place, just stick with it. It will more than pay itself off in so many different ways. Don't give up. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel and I'm with today's guest, Andy Smith. Andy is joining us from Cincinnati, Ohio. He is a partner at the Cincinnati office of Lewis Brisboy, a national law firm. He specializes in real estate law. Andy's portfolio consists of 50 units and several Airbnbs. Andy, thank you for joining us. And how are you today? Thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Awesome. Andy, can you share a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Yeah, I'm a real estate attorney by trade. I'm sitting here in my law firm office. So my day job is just being a lawyer, construction, litigation, real estate things. And then nights, weekends throughout the day, I'm also a real estate investor, kind of wear both hats and I'm always looking for the next deal. Did you start out as a real estate attorney or a real estate investor first? Attorney. Okay. What was it in your course of action that made you start investing in real estate? That's a really good question. I didn't know it at the time, but I grew up helping my dad around the house, fixing things up, went to law school and focused on contracts, construction, real estate, and just really liked building things. My favorite board game growing up, you wouldn't be surprised, is Monopoly. So I just kind of learned a different set of skills that really helps out with it. Then I quickly realized even with a really good job that it's really helpful to have passive income, multiple streams of revenue, and just fell into my lap that way. The first piece of property I ever bought was a small condo here in Cincinnati, two bed, one bath condo. And I just said, why don't I just get a roommate, help out with the bills, get to know somebody, and then... That was about eight years ago, and ever since then, I've just been building piece by piece by piece to add to my portfolio. What does your portfolio look like today? Around 40 units of C-class rental property, a few Airbnbs, including multifamily building and some single-family houses in downtown Cincinnati. I'm trying my hand at flipping properties, so I have a couple of those going on. Then I actually have a much larger C-class building under contract at the moment. All right. Hold on now. You're an attorney. You got mm-hmm. single families, multifamilies, and Airbnbs. Yep. So you got a couple full-time jobs. Who manages yeah. your properties? Yours truly. <laughs> what are you doing to yourself, man? I know. <laughs> are no, you I'm just... looking to offload any of these? Yeah. I've done some 1031 exchanges recently. So I have some smaller properties, like the first ever duplex I purchased around seven years ago. I recently sold, cashed in all the equity along with another four family and 1031 that into this basically a 32 unit that I have under contract. I think I had around 15 buildings at one point and I'm trying to get fewer buildings, but bigger buildings, fewer roofs and so on to be able to really 
take advantage of that opportunity. So I'm definitely looking to offload some things, some of the smaller headaches and ones that have been around for a while. Are you looking to offload your single families first? And are those the most time consuming? So the single families I have are operated as Airbnbs. And I actually do have a management company for the Airbnb side of things. So that's been really nice, just out of sight, out of mind, just checking in once a month or so with the manager and driving by the properties and that sort of thing. So those have been not a headache at all. I think it really just depends on the particular piece of property, the exact street it's on, not even the neighborhood. I've had places in rougher areas, but a good street. And I've had places in what you would think would be a better neighborhood, but just have different issues for whatever reason. Would you consider making any of your multifamily properties Airbnb? Not really. My whole take with the Airbnb market, which honestly, I'm not a huge fan of, but I'm glad I dabbled in it. I wanted to find places where I would want to stay. If I was coming to Cincinnati or any city, I'd want to stay downtown. I'd want to stay close to things. I want a cool, unique, trendy place, maybe historically cool. I have a house built in 1880 that's been totally rehabbed. And a lot of the original charm, exposed brick, fireplaces, all that sort of stuff. So I was really focused on that for the Airbnb side, whereas I'd be scared to traditionally rent those sort of structures just due to tenant damage, issues like that. What I meant was, would you take any of your apartments and turn those into short-term rentals? I don't think so. Just based on the way I look at the math, I think it'd be worse off than a monthly tenant. And then with the management fees and everything on top of that, furnishing costs, I just don't think that would make sense. Why did you say you're not a huge fan of short-term rentals now? Different markets, like I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio, it's just oversaturated. Everybody and their mother thinks they can do Airbnb. I think when I first started, there were around 800 units in town. There's 1,300 units now. So oversaturation, tons of supply. I'm a basic economics guy. My undergrad degree was in economics. So basic supply and demand is starting to not make sense. It's very competitive. How do you separate your 500 square foot one bedroom unit from the next person's? How do you get higher on that list on the Airbnb app? And then management fees. It's no joke. Most property managers for a short-term market are 15% at the bare minimum, and some go as high as 30% or more off the top. Cleaning fees, there are a lot of expenses. You get your profit and loss statement every month. And of course, the biggest number is factoring in what the customer paid through Airbnb. But then the pass-through costs like cleaning, property management, local taxes, all of that's just ignored and they just show you the biggest number possible. And by the time you get your check in the bank account every month, it's whittled down quite a bit where you don't have those sort of issues with traditional rental spaces. And all this while you're a full-time real estate attorney. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't tell know what's you, wrong with me. <laughs> Tell me about the 32 unit you have under contract. It's two 16-unit buildings, one parking lot, quiet street. It's newly rehabbed, so there's not a lot of cost there. A lot of one beds, some studios, some three beds. So it's got a little bit of diversification there. 
each building has a quote unquote storage room. So being a value add guy, when I walked that property, my eyeballs lit up because I'm going to turn each of those storage rooms into additional units. So it's going to go from a 32 unit to a 34. I think rents are really low how they are right now. So I think there's a lot of opportunity to grow that. And then the thing I like with the bigger buildings, I put dumpsters for trash, even at some four, five, six unit type buildings, still paying for the same size dumpster at a 32 unit building while getting all of the additional revenue in. So I think with those factors, I'm excited for it for sure. How did you find this deal? This was just on the market. Well, I shouldn't say that. It didn't come out on the Zillow's, the Trulia's, Realtor.com's of the world, but just a realtor I work with. I bug him every single week on what exactly I'm looking for. In the commercial space, it popped up on LoopNet and the sites like that. I went to see it right away. Other than the two units that you're going to add, it's two units per building or two units total? One in each. So two units total. Two total. Other than that, this was pretty turnkey. Did you pay top dollar for it? I don't think so. The market's absolutely out of control right now. So you you have to be kind of careful. I sold two properties for prices I would never in a million years pay for. So I had all of that cash, that equity, but then I didn't want to pay similar top dollar for what I was going to use to buy into. And this property had been sitting for a while, had some vacancies, And clearly the owner just didn't care as much about this place as maybe somebody whose only property would be this one. So I think I got a good deal. And then I have it under contract for a lot less than list. And a lot of things are going to get touched up and improved throughout the inspection period and everything. So yeah. What's the the purchase (laughs) price on this deal? 1.9 million. And what is that per door? Is that a metric that you use? Yeah, it is. I remember the days where it was 40000 per door, but that's just not realistic anymore. I try to stay 60000 ish is the high end of where I feel comfortable. But with this one, I was excited because I don't have to go in and renovate units. I don't have to do any of that. And I think just by getting this property, building out the two additional one-bedroom units and getting rents up, it's going to improve its value significantly. And that will be is this very, very easy. What is the price per door on this one? That's a good question. Let's see. As is, I'm at 59375 per door. But with the value-add opportunity, there's coin laundry. I think four sets of coin laundry. So that's a little bit of additional income. And another big thing I'm looking for, which I was clueless eight years ago, is property taxes. Property taxes really matter. So this one had been entity transferred which is another real estate lingo. A lot of your listeners are well aware of what this is, but it's a way around increasing tax valuation. So as things sit right now, it's only 13,000 a year in property taxes, which is half a percent of the value compared to 2.5% or more, which is what you should be paying on your property. And that's going to be an issue at some point, right? So let's explain entity transfers. Ohio is one of those states where entity transfers are common for commercial property transfers, and it basically doesn't trigger a sale with the county, the school board, so they don't right away come back and reassess your taxes. 
However, is there a time frame on which that catches up with you, if ever? That's a good question. And it's a little bit of a political issue, local government issue. At some point, you're right, at some point it'll catch up. But it's still a loophole. It's still in effect. I haven't really heard anything. I feel a lot of the focus is on the short-term rental market. Hamilton County now wants to tax short-term investment property income. So I think this commercial property loophole is still kind of unknown and not so much in the forefront. And a lot of the developers downtown take advantage of this as well. So you're right, one day, five, 10 years, whatever it is. But I think in the short term, the advantage, it'll be well worth it. Yeah, agree. I'll tell you that in the Columbus market, apartments are no longer getting away with entity transfers. School boards are paying attorneys to find these and go after them. So I'm with you. Hopefully this doesn't come down to our market anytime soon, but for states where this is commonplace, it's a great thing to take advantage of. Look, you should explain it more than me. Can you explain the transfer into a new entity that then becomes transferred upon sale? Yeah, it's really just an academic exercise some standard legal documents. I've prepared them. The theory is you transfer it into a new entity that the current owner owns for a split second and then gives back to you at closing. It's really just kind of a bizarre concept. But at the end of the day, the advantage of it is huge. The seller has to agree to it, but I've never seen a seller refuse to do that during a closing process. And it's cheap, whether you kind of learn to do it yourself, which I'm obviously qualified to do, or you pay an attorney, you're talking a thousand bucks, maybe 1500 bucks to literally save tens of thousands of dollars. So yeah, between the 1031 exchanges and entity transfers, those are two things, at least in Cincinnati, that are just amazing opportunities for real estate investors. Yeah. And I don't think we've ever talked about entity transfers before on this podcast, but yeah, it is an incredible way of keeping more of your tax dollars to yourself, right? Yeah. Greatest things out there. Yeah. My first duplex I ever bought for $115,000. Now, maybe at that price point, these things don't much matter. At most, you're paying annually two and a half percent of the appraised value of your property. But once you get into even 500,000, especially the $2 million range, I think it's a no brainer. Anytime I look at a deal now, I'm even looking at 10 unit buildings, but my ideal goal now is to be buying 20, 30 unit buildings. And one of the first things I look at, I jump on the auditor website and it's right there. A couple clicks of the mouse, you're looking at what are you paying in property taxes? So I've seen properties, this one's effectively $2 million. I'm going to be paying 13000 per year in property taxes. I've seen properties listed for a million dollars paying 30000 a year in taxes. It's just kind of nuts. It just depends on the history and whether there had been entity transfers before. But at the end of the day, that's a lot more rental income. That's like, you know, 12 more units in this building, you know, yeah. compared to that other option. Yeah, it's an amazing tool. And anytime there's a seller that's hesitant, just have the title company explain it to them. Have their title company explain it to them, somebody they know and trust. And it's usually very simple to get them on board with that. Yeah, absolutely. I have a title company explain it to them, have their attorney explain it to them, have 
Google and explain it to them. Like I said, it's just kind of a screwy, bizarre academic exercise, but it's really simple and the benefits are just tremendous. Andy, on this 32 unit property that you're buying for 1.9 million, roughly mm-hmm. 60,000 per unit, what is it going to cost you to convert the storage rooms into apartments? I've been talking with my contractor and a few others. I think it'll be around 25,000 total for both units. And I'm thinking of maybe roughly furnishing them just because they are smaller units to add a little bit of a perk to rent those. So I'm going to put mini splits in there and they'll be brand new, just kind of smaller. But whenever I see empty space in a building, I'm just seeing dollar signs and how can I maximize that? Have you seen those tiny apartments at Ikea? Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. How you could get an entire apartment into like a 400 square foot space. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. It's going to cost you $25,000. And if you just extrapolate the 60,000 per unit purchase price, you're adding at least $120,000 in value. Absolutely. That's a win. Yeah. Would you consider doing a reverse 1031? And once you buy this, selling off some of your other units? Yeah, absolutely. My plan for this one was sell my first two properties I ever purchased with a lot of equity to buy this. And I've got two more already lined up that I've got a handyman getting ready to list, touching things up. And I think I'm just going to do this same process again once I feel comfortable with the 32-unit building. I remember when I went from a duplex to an eight-unit during COVID, and you're kind of fearful, oh my God, eight tenants, one building. But really, it just gets easier. It's kind of a bizarre phenomenon. (laughs) But at least in my experience, the bigger buildings have been easier to deal with. Yeah, and you're at scale. Are you going to self-manage this? We'll see. You're about to nod yes. You're about (laughs) to say yes, and then you hesitated. You're killing me. I've got some managers lined up, but I've just had bad experience. Nobody cares about your stuff as much as you do. I have zero vacancies in my properties. I know we're supposed to calculate and plan for vacancies, but that stuff just kills me. I've got zero vacancies. I try to operate to maximize everything as much as I can. So I've got some ideas for property managers. But quite frankly, during my day job, I've sued a lot of property managers. It's just hard to find people. Nobody's going to mow your lawn as well as you want, except for you. And it's the same concept. So I struggle there. I do. But after this one, I'd like to, because at that point, I'll have 70, 80 units. I'll be able to account for a little bit of error, let's say, turnover, vacancy, and still be doing just fine. Yeah. So you know me, I don't do multifamily, right? but there's that pain point between 50 and 70 units where it doesn't pay to have a full-time leasing person or property manager on board. So you're entering that pain point, right? Yeah. Listen, let's brainstorm together because I'm not a multifamily investor. What can you do to offload tasks? Let's not go from zero to full on handing everything off to a property manager, but background checks, how long does that take when you do that for people? It's just a couple minutes. I fell into the rental property business because my undergrad was in economics. So I understand the basics of economics. And then my day job, whether it's walking down the street to handle an eviction for myself or drafting a contract for a contractor or a new lease, it's all stuff that 
I can handle pretty quickly with zero expense. So I also have software where I can run a background check for free in a matter of seconds. So I am positioned uniquely for some of those things. But you're right that whether it's collecting rent or just maintenance inquiries and things, there's definitely some stuff I can offload. And I've gotten better. There was a day where I was driving around every Saturday morning. I was cleaning up dumpsters. I was mowing lawns. I was doing maintenance myself. So I've gotten past that. Got a lawn care company. I've got maintenance people. But to get to that next level of really just making it more passive, that's going to be a struggle. Yeah, I get it. I was in the same boat, taking toilets out, putting them back in. (laughs) In middle of the night, right? So I could put my kids to bed and make sure the office building is working by the time people got in. We are often our own worst enemy. What about a personal assistant? Do you have one of those? I don't, but that's something I've thought about. I'm a really organized OCD person. So I don't struggle so much. Like every tenant I have is in my cell phone with their email, their date of birth, their address. I've got spreadsheets on spreadsheets on spreadsheets. So it's really just a matter of trying to figure out where to save little pockets of time and how to value my time, really. We'll get back to the show with first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. Deciding how to invest your capital is more challenging than ever. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company with a solid track record and that has thrived through various economic cycles. Companies like BAM Capital. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator that has delivered a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has never missed a preferred payment, never lost an LP's investment, and never called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital is currently raising capital for a fund designed for accredited investors targeting a 15 to 20% IRR and a 2 to 2.5x equity multiple to its investors over a three to five year hold period. If you're an accredited investor and you want to learn more about multifamily investment opportunities with BAM Capital, visit capital.thebamcompanies.com. Again, that's capital.thebamcompanies.com. Are you a real estate investor looking to break into the multifamily investing space? Have you heard of MFIN Con happening in Charlotte, North Carolina, June 12th through the 14th? The Multifamily Investor Nation Convention is a place to learn from over 60 high-level apartment investors while networking with more than 700 additional investors. If that's not enough for you, A-Rod, yep, Alex Rodriguez. 12-time Major League Baseball All-Star with over $700 million of commercial real estate assets. We'll be live and in person speaking at the event. Also speaking is the one and only Dr. Robert Cialdini, the godfather of influence and the award-winning author. I personally love his books. So be sure to secure your tickets to this live in-person event before they're gone. Go to MFINCon.com for more details. Sponsorship opportunities are also available. Visit MFINCON.com today. Use the promo code BESTEVER to get $200 off your tickets. That's MFINCon.com. Do you use property management software or just Excel? Just Google Sheets. I'll share those if I'm working on a big project with a contractor or something. I use Google Sheets, just very basic stuff. <laughs> People are probably out there laughing at me right now, but that's, no, listen, it, it works um, for me. No, Excel and Google Sheets can work wonders, but I went through that same evolution So having property management software, it might help you with automating the application process. Just go to this website, create an account. 
they submit their application. And then once they're set up, they start paying rent through there and you don't have to send them rent reminders. The software will do that for you. One of the things that I would implore you to do, and I've asked a lot of people to do this, is do a time audit. So set your phone on a repetitive timer every 55 minutes and take the last five minutes of that hour and write down what you've done the previous 55. And then don't look at what you've written down for about a week and go back and figure out what things are repetitive that you could systemize or what things you can offload. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I was very hesitant in getting a personal assistant, but it was the greatest thing I've ever done. It's amazing. And I get it. They're not going to do things the way you do. And the higher your OCD, <laughs> the tougher that's going to be. But look, at some point, you out of all people, your time is very valuable just right. based on what you bill your time at. So exactly. I would challenge you to put in some of those systems and offload things. I do want to dive into the conversation about being a real estate attorney. When mm -hmm. we started talking about that, one of the first things you mentioned was construction litigation. Does that happen a lot or is that just a recent thing that you're dealing with? I've been a practicing attorney for about 13 years now. I graduated law school when I was 23 and I've stuck with it here, 36 today. You're a young attorney, you're just doing whatever you can. But then I really grappled onto construction litigation. My dad was a construction worker and my favorite thing growing up was playing with Legos. So if I get to go to a job site, see a building or talk to contractors and stuff, I'm a happy guy. So what does construction litigation mean? I get asked that a lot. Sometimes you have a situation where a contractor messes up. Believe it or not, that happens <laughs> quite a bit. So I'll be retained maybe by the owner to sue a contractor or maybe by the contractor to defend the contractor's company. But there's a lot of what's known as construction defect litigation where architect plans aren't followed or for whatever reason, there's defects and flaws with the structure. There's always business disputes just over contractual language, delays, breach of contract stuff, and then sometimes just negotiating deals. On that topic, I get it if the contract is very clearly written out and the GC didn't follow what the architect had asked for and what the GC agreed that they were going to do. But what mm -hmm. about those jobs where you hire somebody, there's a lot of ambiguity in the contract. Are there some things that are customary that will help protect the person hiring the contractor? Or does it really come down to the letter of the law in the contract? There's an old adage I learned, if it's not in writing, it didn't happen. We're all guilty of this. We're all too busy. We all just have the phone call and then expect it to go as the phone call went or a couple text messages. But I really just implore everybody to take the time, put it in writing, put it in the contract, pay the couple extra dollars to have lawyers review the contract or draft it like myself. And it's going to save you a ton of money, time and frustration in the end. But to answer your question, it really boils down to what's in the four corners of that document. But there's tons of situations that happen where it's just not going to be in the contract, some little issue. So sometimes there's these guiding principles in the law that judges have come up with over hundreds of years. <laughs> and sometimes it just boils down to common sense. But really, it's important that you be as descriptive as you can in the contract. 
Yeah. Deadlines, what's to be expected, all those things to try to really put a lot of time and effort up front so you guys can both be on the same page. Good advice. What are the most common mistakes that people make that make you cringe? Why do I have to keep dealing with this? Why don't people just understand this? What are repetitive mistakes that just blow your mind? I'll see contracts that aren't signed. Multi-million dollar deals, just not signed. And then I'll see contracts. This isn't so much with residential or lower end deals, but once you get into commercial, more sophisticated entities, you're allowed to put in a lot of what are called liquidated damages clauses or penalties. So if you're the owner and you're hiring a contractor to do a big job, you want to make that contract as advantageous to you as possible. So I literally have multiple cases like this right now where there's attorney fee clauses in there, which is normal, but you can craft that language to be favorable to you. So you can say, if contractor breaches contract, then contractor owes the owner reasonable attorney fees, court costs, expert costs, and so on. That's great. But I'll see the boilerplate copy paste from Google language that says, the prevailing party gets attorney fees. Why would you ever draft a contract that can be used against you? I have that happening right now in multiple cases where a case could settle for pennies on the dollar, but there's that attorney fee clause. And it's something that the developer or the owner just messed up and you've clearly breached the contract, even for a simple, dumb little thing. But instead of being on the hook for the cost of fixing a kitchen floor, you're on the hook for the kitchen floor plus 80 grand in attorney fees. So just things like that. First off, be the one to draft a contract. Take the bulls by the horn and make that contract favorable. Don't do the other side favors. They might decide not to sign it and you can negotiate that language from there, but I'll just give them a bone for nothing. That just blows my mind. I've know? never heard that. It's million dollar advice. And I can't tell yeah. you all of our leases, all of our contracts have the prevailing party clause in it. So I just took a note on that. That's going to change. Yeah. Or then incredible advice. Ash, you deal with property, not just in your hometown, but elsewhere. Why would you want to get hauled down to North Dakota to go to court? You can do choice of venue. So you can say, you want to sue under this contract, that's fine, but you got to sue in Cincinnati, Ohio, or wherever you can put in there. You can't even sue first. You got to go to arbitration or mediation, which are very smart money-saving moves. There's just a lot of things like that. And they're always the end of the contract. So maybe you start reading the contract and by the time you get to the end, you're just flipping pages initially. But those are some of the most important provisions, choice of law, choice of venue, and then the attorney fees or liquidated damages penalties. If you're an owner, no project ever finishes on budget or in time. That's just the reality. But put in there, hey, contractor, you don't finish by this deadline, you're going to get fined $50 a day, whatever it is and make them aware of that. This is all incredible advice. Or time is of the essence. You might have a deadline in there, but make sure that the deadline is actually important. So one of these archaic legal phrases, time is of the essence. That means the deadline is important, basically.
if you don't have the time is of the essence clause, what can be a loophole? It depends. You could establish a pattern of conduct or communications that it was clear that the deadline was important. What I'll even do, I did this recently. I was renovating a house that I thought at the time I said to myself, I'm going to Airbnb this house downtown. So in the rehab contract, I put, hey, Mr. Contractor, this property needs to be done by this date. Time is of the essence. It's going to be used as an Airbnb. And I expect that Airbnb to make six grand a month. And if you're not done by that deadline, you're paying me six grand a month until you're done. Because if you don't do that, the contractor is just going to say, oh, I thought this was just the house. You were going to move into it. The delays didn't matter. You know, no, it's in writing. You initialed it. It's in bold print. Those are my damages. So then God forbid you go to court, you show that to the judge, open, shut, case over. Yeah. Again, this advice is gold. I have a commercial tenant who's opening up a bar restaurant and the contractors are just coming and going at whim. So my yeah. advice to her was, listen, schedule a grand opening, have the mayor do a ribbon cutting, have the band set up. So there's no excuse to miss. But I like your suggestions a lot better. Just have it in the contract. Yeah. yeah probably, and, honestly, she probably didn't even have a contract. It was yeah. handshakes. It's um, easier said than done. But once you get burned once, you're yeah. going to learn these lessons. And I don't care if it's a simple little project or a multi-million dollar project. I try to put everything in writing, have a contract, make it clear. And it's for the benefit of both sides. Obviously, I'm going to make it more advantageous to my side, but it's important that both sides are on the same page, understand the deadlines, the payment, and so on. And again, it's easier said than done. I'm guilty of it, and I'm an attorney. I've done the handshake deals and all that, but that's important. And much to like what you just said, by establishing that grand opening and everything, you're showing the deadline, the damages. So God forbid that situation ever does wind up in a court that's the evidence of the no damages. Of the, yeah. 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 Because yeah. otherwise it's just, he said, she said, I was going to do this. I would have done this. You know, all these hypotheticals, which judges hate. Andy, a lot of our listeners are wondering if I have a 20, 30, $40,000 project, do I really need this? Or is there a minimum threshold where it makes sense to engage an attorney in contract writing a review? That's a good question. Even at 20,000, I think it makes sense to have an attorney. And once you establish a relationship, I don't gouge every client as if it's a brand new contract. One thing I've done with clients is you can almost create a form for a lot of this stuff. It's very inexpensive to just take that form, plug in a few names, the scope of the job. I've done form contracts for even general contractors. So when they get hired by an owner, it's just plug and play. Some of them are old school and printed out and write the scope and price and everything in there. But it's not as if every little project needs a $2,000 legal document. A lot of it, you can just copy paste and really change pretty easily. Got it. I want to circle back to an earlier question where I asked if there's anything that's customary in your example of a contract not being signed. Let's say draws were paid. 
Yeah. Would a judge assume that both people agreed to the contract or yeah. does the signature hold that much weight? It's kind of a non-issue because if you perform, so there's mm-hmm. something called the doctrine of promissory estoppel and you know all these legal phrases. But if you have a written contract, you kind of negotiated, but for whatever reason, people just forgot to sign it and you perform, money exchanges hand, work is performed, you've got a contract. The question then becomes, though, what are the terms of that contract? Are they actually the terms in the written agreement, or are they just customary, ordinary terms based on the performance? And that's really a a state-specific jurisdictional issue. You could have a situation where you thought you had a contract, You forgot to sign it or notarize it or date it or whatever. And then some of those terms you thought were in there are not really in there. This sounds like really expensive potential litigation. (laughs) Yeah, 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 it is. Construction litigation is time consuming and expensive, unfortunately. So let's avoid it. (laughs) What is the biggest flaw or mistake you see with commercial leases or residential leases? Or let's do both questions. Two different questions. I think it's the same issue. So with residential leases, the lease I draft for a residential tenant, because a lot of it is unenforceable. There's the Ohio Landlord Tenant Act. When you're dealing with residential stuff, you're dealing with, at least with a law perceives it as unsophisticated tenants. A lot of the stuff you put in that is unenforceable. You cannot get attorney fees from a tenant late fees, judges just laugh at that. They'll give you maybe $50, but not this $10 per day until paid. A lot of the stuff you see in residential leases is just unenforceable. So I'll read these 10, 20 page leases and it's just not worth the writing on the page. What I like to do- You're blowing a lot of minds right now, including mine. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a lot more fruitful. Do a simple lease, both sides understand it. And then I'll do an attachment that's incorporated in the lease of just guidelines and recommendations. So I think we've all seen it. Don't put baby wipes down the toilet. Don't put hot grease down the kitchen sink. I just do a guidebook of being a decent tenant. And I say in the lease, any material breach of that is grounds for eviction. And that's really worked out the best for me because I've experienced it either with clients or firsthand where municipal court is almost like Judge Judy. It's not so much about what the law says as fairness and equity to the tenants. So I've focused on that and changed the way I look at residential leases or residential tenant disputes. It's a different world. Whereas commercial You can have that much longer detailed lease, and it's, for the most part, all enforceable as written. I've never had an attorney where if we went to them or anybody approached an attorney and said, can you draft a commercial lease? I've never had one do that from scratch. They always want you to present something to start with. Why is that? I have a library of leases in my computer and you can kind of plug and play. But to start drafting a lease from scratch just takes an inordinate amount of time. So I think from your perspective, depending on what sort of commercial space you're dealing with, it just helps the attorney to see what exists before. And to be quite frank, that attorney might not 
have drafted a lease like that before. So they want to see what to go off of and tweak it in their own way. So That's a good our, question. Yeah, our whole team has been working on reading through dozens of our old commercial leases and trying to come up with one badass lease. Yeah, um, but, absolutely. But, you know, it's not one size fits all, obviously. No. Tenants that have restaurants are different than tenants that have a liquor license or whatever it might be. Competition yeah. clauses. Every commercial lease is so unique. What a great conversation today. Andy, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Just to not give up. Just keep going. Real estate is very forgiving. If you bought your first place and you had a terrible tenant and they destroyed the place, just stick with it. It will more than pay itself off in so many different ways. Don't give up. Yeah. And everybody gets bit, right? We all have those. Oh, yeah. 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 I've got enough war stories for a couple podcasts with you. <laughs> awesome. Andy, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? I am. All right, Andy, what's the best ever book you recently read? Believe it or not, I don't read for fun a lot. So Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I only recently read and that blew my mind. Yeah. I read that much later in life. And if I had read it earlier, I probably would have changed the trajectory. Of my <laughs> yeah. yeah, same here. That or four hour work week. That's a good one too. I've got one for you. Who, not how. Have you read that? I have not. It's by Dan Sullivan. Take a look at that. That's another game changing book. So please take a look at that. Andy, what's the best ever way you like to give back? Anybody that wants advice on real estate investing or being a lawyer or anything that I do, I say, come have lunch with me. I'll buy you lunch. You can ask me whatever you want. I never had that growing up, learned everything the hard way. So I've been on boards. I've done donations, all that. But this is what I feel I do best as far as giving back. And Andy, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? Oh, boy. Twitter, my law firm, Lewis Brisboy. I've got email on there and all that. So any way, shape or form. Andy, I got to thank you again. What a great conversation. We covered not only your portfolio, your deals, your real estate background, but a wealth of knowledge on the legal real estate side. No legal advice given, but you gave us some great advice. Thank you for your time. Thanks for the opportunity. Hopefully it helps somebody out there. Yeah, I'm sure you did. You blew some <laughs> minds. Best ever listeners, thank you as well for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share this episode with someone you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day. Hi, best ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best ever content? Well, if so... Join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best ever newsletter. Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.